Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 15 of Carlos Rios' All Ears. Today, you're listening to a conversation with Dr. Ian Dickey. Dr. Dickey is a composer inspired by social, political, culture, and music technology. He currently serves as an associate professor of composition at the University of California, Riverside. His music compositions have been commissioned and performed by ensembles and soloists worldwide and he also happens to run a software company called Novel Music, which creates unique musical instruments that encourage happy accidents. Dr. Dickey taught my first uh, formal music composition class when I was in college, and you know, to this day I often meditate on the lessons he taught uh, me and, and the rest of the class uh, during that time. Uh, so in this conversation, uh, we mostly talk about music composition, as you might guess. <laughs> uh, we also talk uh, quite a bit about uh, his experience running a business and, you know, exploring different uh, creative activities. And then we also talk about balancing all of these many activities with uh, life in general. So I, we talk about a lot of other stuff, too. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, again, thank you so much for for making the time to do this. I I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Well, my pleasure, and it's nice to uh, catch up with you again. It's been a long time. It really has. Uh, uh, last week, I met with Andrew Ziegler, so you'll be seeing. Oh, you know, yeah, he says hi. I saw him right before the pandemic. Yeah, I don't I think know he if he recounted that. Yes, it yep. was March 2020. Everyone was debating about having these concerts. I was in this world where I was thinking that the media was just hyping up the pandemic because the media tends to do things like that. Yeah, of course. And of course, I sort of ate my words later and regretted that. Yep, yep. Um, but we, yes, I still had the concert, and and Andy came out, and it was it was a wonderful piece he had, and it was fun. That's so cool. Yeah, he said he he came uh, to your concert for your concert. That's what he said it was. Exactly. In fact, that was my last night out. I remember that because the following day everything shut down. At that point, I can't remember yeah. the date exactly. Like the thirteenth of March, I think. It was around there. I remember because um, I was not living in Austin, so we've moved a couple of times um, since graduating. So we graduated in twenty fourteen. Katie and I did from our undergrad, and we did pursue higher ed degrees. We graduated and we got married like almost right after that. Uh, I think uh, we invited a few people. I think we didn't really expect any of our like professors or anybody to show up, but uh, Professor Hickey, uh, Hickey, no, 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 uh, what's her name? Uh, oh, it's killing me. Piano teacher, uh, Professor, it's something with an H. She thought a lot of the uh, pedagogy piano mm -hmm. people oh man this is terrible i can't remember she's like the famous piano teacher um oh well it'll come back uh she came to our wedding and it was really sweet no oh. um so but where was i going with all of this uh we we're talking about the pandemic it well it, we, yeah uh, so we moved we saw, a couple of times Oh, okay. So where where are you uh, calling me from today? Yeah, so we are in Wisconsin. Oh. Uh, we're in Wisconsin. So we moved to Fort Worth for three years mm -hmm. in 2018. In 2018, I became a U.S. citizen. It was cool. Oh, and congratulations. Thank you. 
And then soon after that, uh, we kind of hung up in there for a bit. And I was working in Fort Worth, uh, running a music program, actually, at a boys and girls club of all places. Hmm. That was fun. Uh, got to teach music production and uh, guitar, drums, all that. It was pretty fun. And right now, uh, we moved to Wisconsin. We're only going to be here until the end of April or something like that this coming mm-hmm. year. And then we're going back to Texas. Not entirely sure where yet. <laughs> Well, good luck trying to find an affordable place in Austin. Right. Yeah, yeah. we're likely not going to Austin proper, but yeah, yeah I know. It's, it's, it's nuts. It's wild. Right. Yeah. I was just there back in May of this year at to to back to UT and mm-hmm. uh couldn't it had been a few years since I've been to Austin and um I had things that were bringing me back to Austin fairly regularly for about a decade, but then that mm-hmm. sort of ended. Yeah. And uh, I could not believe the transformation Really? Of, you know, I didn't recognize the neighborhood I used to live in. It was, the city. It was pretty wild. Wow. I mean, I remember, you know, on the weekends I would go down the East 6th Street, which was at the time a sort of transitioning area. Well, it is completely transitioned now. I mean, it's, mm. I, you wouldn't recognize it. I mean, it's un- incredible. It, it transformed in, in a good way. It, I mean, I remember living in Austin, <laughs> getting my doctorate at UT and meeting people who had lived in Austin for many years saying, well, it used to be cool. Now it's not. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like I'm c- carrying the torch. They passed it to me because <laughs> I'm like, well, it used to be cool. Now it's not. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly become less diverse, I feel, because mm-hmm. it's now it really is a lot of high end restaurants, high end retail, high end um, mixed use buildings that are, you know, for um, uh, apartments, luxury apartments, things like that. Mm-hmm. And um you know, and not to say that that's probably not enjoyable to live um, in that sort of uh, world, but it sort of has lost a bit of its character that I felt that it had. Yeah. yeah I mean, I should, of- I'm not one to speak because now I live in a suburb, so of course that has really right. very little character. Yeah, I feel like there's a certain charm that you get out of like a, a budding artist or a budding creative that, you know, maybe once he settles and he he's maybe become successful kind of thing. I feel like that's maybe one way to look at Austin. Like it's for a few decades there, it was like this emerging city of innovation and fun and creativity. And you have rainy street with all the cool houses that were turning to restaurants and bars and that whole kind of thing. And then it just, now it's just more corporate. I mean, just driving down Lamar Boulevard, I recall back in May, yeah. And my, I was staying with a friend of mine who I used to play in a band with and I hadn't seen in some years and he has stayed in Austin this whole time. And so it was interesting to get his perspective, mm-hmm. but he, he was like, Hey, why don't I just drive you around? You got to see everything. And I was like, yeah. And yeah. so we went down uh, Lamar Boulevard. All the things I remember were no longer there. Right. But it was, you know, one thing about Austin, at least when I lived there, I recall you didn't really have a whole lot of taller apartment buildings. You know, you had these sort yeah. of one story buildings. And yes. now it's like full of these multi-story buildings. So everything, it just feels, it doesn't feel the same way. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the broken spoke now is flanked by these modern apartments <laughs> and it looks ridiculous, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I mean, the broken spoke, of course, is a huge landmark place and touristy yeah. place and always will do well. But I think it's probably lost a bit of that character because that used to be back in the day down at the end of Lamar there or whatever street it's on down in South Austin, very undeveloped area at that yeah. time. You know, and it's been that's that uh, my understanding is Broken Spoke's been there for what 60 years or something, yeah. So, yeah, it's um, been there for a long time, yeah. 
And I, I mean, I didn't even get to see some of my old favorite places. So I don't know what those are like anymore. The place Don's Depot, I used to like going there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on, uh, what was that, on 6th Street, I guess, but on West 6th Street. Oh. And that was a fun place to go two-stepping and, and just enjoy hanging yeah. out. Yeah. Well, I should I should uh, formally start the podcast and I'm trying to structure things a little bit because I, you know, there's, there's a, the forum is just, it just kind of talk. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that yes. works great. But I was right. like, I want to, I want to at least uh, be able to allow people who listen to this, which isn't, which it isn't many, but it's some. So <laughs> allow them to kind of get to know and understand who they're listening to. So, so my question, what I'm hoping will be my opening question. And I keep doing this thing where I talk or ramble for like 30 minutes and then I never get to the question. But the question is, if you can tell me, Ian, uh, who is Ian Dickey and uh, what do you enjoy and what is motivating slash important for you? Uh, Well, I am a composer Mm -hmm. and also a musician, I would say. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between composition and you know, being a performer, musician, very little, I think, in, in many ways. And I also uh, design music software, mm. and I teach at the University of California, Riverside. So those are the various hats that I wear, um, besides some sub-hats in there, if you drill down <laughs> further. Of course, when you have an academic job, there's lots of committee work, and I run a concert series at Riverside and so on. Uh, and... Um, so music is, you know, my primary motivation is what fires me up, gets me excited to get up in the morning. Um, I have a wonderful family, mm. my wife and two children. And of course, they're a huge part of my life as well. Mm. Uh, but yeah, just uh, I love making things. Mm, making things. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you have two children. What are What are their ages? Uh, Nova Lee is nine, going to be nine in January. Okay. She's um, in third grade. And uh, my son, Lucien, just turned a year old, so he's like 13 months right now. So there's a bit of an age gap there. Yeah. So she was uh, your Nova, Nova Lee, was mm-hmm. her name? Mm-hmm. Uh, born around the time when I graduated in 2014. When She's is born it that you got your, your doctorate? I finished in uh, 2012. 2012. And then and it was a wild time because at that point I had my job in hand. Mm-hmm. I was one of those lucky few to have the job for UC Riverside in hand at my defense. Wow. So that felt pretty good going nice. into the defense already having this job basically. Yeah. Um, and I had uh, been awarded a Fulbright to go study in yeah. Sweden. Wow. And so I actually deferred my uh, starting date of my job for a year. They let me do that, which was, I was really grateful for because I really wanted to do this Fulbright. Yeah. And yeah. so we did that, and we, my wife and I lived in Sweden for a year, and that was when um, we decided we would start our family. Yeah. Yeah. I see. I see. Well, it makes sense, you know, when you think about, you know, Riverside, it seems like they really wanted you, and... And then you're like, well, I have this Fulbright, and it makes sense, I think, for them to think of like, oh man, you're even a, you're gonna be even better than. It, that's how they saw it, I think. Than, I'm sure they were yeah. slightly irritated. On the other hand, it validated the search committee because they, yeah. 
it showed the administration that look, this person we've, as you said, this person we've picked is, is you know, getting these grants and doing these things. So, yeah, they let me do it. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fun. Yeah. Uh, so, at what point did you do you feel like music became so such an integral part of your life? Like, what, when did that happen? Because I mean, it is definitely apparent to me from from the time that I was at UT and really uh, my first composition class because I, I started taking all the uh, musicianship courses right, and right. you know all that kind of thing. But I was like, okay, I'm ready to do composition, and they're like, well, at that point in the program, the way that it worked is you had to take a class first. Um, that was a, it was, I think it was open to like anyone that wanted to do I think it so. on campus. Yeah. Music and, majors. Yeah. But maybe, maybe it was beyond that. Yeah. I think it was beyond that, but regardless, and then after you're done with that, then you can start taking private lessons. Um, but so that was the first actual formal composition course that I took at UT was with you. And I mean, I obviously I already love music, but uh, you, you definitely, uh awaken certain aspects and uh brought to my attention certain elements of of music and music making that are a joy to me to this day and, and there's still things that I, that uh, you taught us in that class that I still use and and think about so very apparent to me that that music is so motivating for you and and it drives you and, and it's it's just so cool to see now I have fond memories of that course I mean that was one of my first experiences really teaching besides doing some, you know, musicianship stuff yeah. at UT. Mm-hmm. That, that was my first real class where I designed the the syllabus and, you know, the content of the course. And mm-hmm. it was interesting. And maybe you shouldn't know this, but really there was no oversight. No one had ever actually looked, not a single comp faculty member looked at what I was doing. No one ever came to evaluate what I was doing. So I don't know if that was the norm or if they just decided that I was okay enough. <laughs> <laughs> but or it, or it, maybe it, a little strange it to a, put a grad student in charge like that. <laughs> maybe they didn't think it was a very like consequential class or something. I don't know. I, don't know. I mean, I felt like it probably should be considered important. It was if for it was me. Students first, you know, sort of exposures to formal composition studies in that way. Yeah. So no, and I remember uh, several students and in fact have besides yourself have kept in touch with a few others. So it's, yeah, it was a really great experience doing that yeah. class. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I asked a question and then I did too much uh, contextualization. But <laughs> so what what uh, what were some of those moments in your life where you understood, oh, music is an integral part of my life? Or or did you listen to like one piece of music and you're like, I want to do this? Or how, how well, did it come down? Um, I, I mean, the one downside to being into music is there's very little time for being into anything else. And I must say that's, that is me. I have no hobbies at all. And I wish I did. I don't read. I barely actually listen to music. Cause as you know, when you do music all day, you don't really want to yeah. listen to music either. Yeah. So that's something I'd like to change. I, I wouldn't mind having a hobby or something. I got to work on that. <laughs> um, well, the thing is with music, as you know, and I will answer your question, I promise, but sure. the, with music, it's, it's so, I mean, during the pandemic, I, you know, one thing that I started looking at more was uh, modular synthesis because, I mean, I was, of course, aware of modular synthesis. I've taught that, those concepts for years. Mm-hmm. But not, I've actually not owned all that much gear or any of those things. It's and expensive. Just a, it, it is, and I don't recommend it whatsoever. Mm. 
for anybody. I mean, and I somewhat regret getting into it, but it's, um, you, you know, opening that door into Eurorack and just realizing there's this whole other world. Yeah. And that's the, that's the joy of music. You never will master it. You'll never understand everything about it. Yeah. You always have something new to learn and there's always a new way to make something, uh, via the language of music. Um, or in my case, my sort of growing interest I have in doing software. So, but the, when I first sort of got into music, I mean, I had a very uneventful sort of, uh, childhood as far as what I was into. I didn't, wasn't doing anything. But then when I, yeah, was an, this is a typical story, I think, for most composers, uh, from my generation and maybe even before and certainly after, but just picking up the guitar, picking up the guitar at the age of 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. After that, after like learning some basics on that and getting I to forgot a certain you level, play guitar, that's right. Yeah, when I could like play, you know, Green Day songs and Nirvana songs, when I got to that level, which doesn't take very long, as mm-hmm. you know, um, I, that was it. I was hooked. I would come home from school and I'd just go right up to my room and play. I did a lot by ear. I never ha- actually had guitar lessons. Mm. Um, and then some of this, I was funny, I was speaking to my wife about this this morning. How I said to her, I'll never truly be a great musician. And I think in, in many ways that's because I sort of rejected having instruction early on. Mm-hmm. I really somewhat regret that. I don't have, as far as when I'm thinking about the piano now, I don't have the technique to support playing the pieces that I would like to. I can mm-hmm. fumble through them. You know, the, for me, the Bible is the well-tempered clavier. Mm-hmm. And I love that music, and I wish I could just sit and make it sound the way I want to in my head. You know, I can. I lo- it's a great like uh, brain exercise. Re- sight reading those, uh, you know, three and four voice fugues in the well tempered clavier, which is in itself its own challenge as, as far as sight reading goes. But even when you get beyond that part, mm-hmm. I just can't phrase it the way I want. I can't play it at the tempo I want. And this is because I lack the technique. And so I, I, I do regret not taking that more seriously earlier yeah. in my life. But it is what it is. You know, I, you mean, can't I, I feel like when it comes to piano technique, like a lot of people pick it up older when they're older in life and they become really good at it. Um, but maybe when like, I'm older, I can take lessons. I mean, that's the yeah. thing. I truly have only had in my life two years of piano lessons, I think. Yeah. And that was when I was late teenager, like just about to go to college. Yeah. And I was sort of like, oh, I think I actually like this stuff. I mean, for me, it was discovering the Moonlight Sonata, which again, sounds very cliche. But hearing that, my dad had these like vinyl records sitting in the basement. And I remember like picking that one out and being like, oh, I've heard of this, I think. And I put it on. I was like, whoa. Yeah. And I was blown away. And then I got into classical music. Because before that, I was just into, you know, rock music, pop. I mean, I started getting into the Beatles a bit. That kind of stuff, yeah, and and then more experimental, sort of heavier genres of metal and hardcore things that were regionally where I grew up in New Jersey, very popular, hmm. and that's the kind of music I played with my friends in in sort of bands that I played in, and that music, as you know, is very complex in different types of ways, and so it actually made sense to me that even though that music is very harsh sounding and not rich harmonically, mm-hmm. normally, yeah. The type of complexity in that music and the type of complexity in classical music, to me, there wasn't a huge disconnect. And I saw it as all one big continuum. Yeah. Um, and it made sense to me. Yeah. 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 It's a, for me, it was a beef. I mean, I did love classical music, but during my teens, I was into all the guitar heroes. Mm-hmm. And I was a huge Steve Vai fan. Oh, yeah. Uh, I never really became acquainted with Frank Zappa who mm-hmm. was one of his main mentors. 
but uh, I I love Steve Vai growing up, and I like a lot of the other guys too. But Steve Vai was the one that I connected mm-hmm. with the most. Right, I found his music to be more interesting uh, and more. Uh, well, he has that background. Yeah, nuance. Yeah, yeah, he has that background. Yeah, right. It was not just shredding. The, right. You know, a harmonic minor scale exactly up and down really fast, and then doing like little sweep arpeggios and yeah. I mean, I remember listening to Dream Theater too and things like that, and Yes, and being you know getting into those things because I was like, Mm -hmm. wow, this is so cool, and trying to do that kind of stuff in the bands I played in, and you know, it was fun. Yeah, but I saw, I saw, like you said, there was a it flowed naturally from that to like classical music, especially because I liked a lot of. I I am a huge Stravinsky fan, and mm-hmm. you know I I'm, I'm kind of like oh come on, boring. It's like Moonlight Sonata, but I I came across uh, right of spring. I was download downloading music mm-hmm. um, on it was a Napster, but it was a similar thing <laughs> as Napster. And uh, I remember Napster. Yeah, well, good good old days. But yeah. I, so I downloaded some music, some MP3 of of uh, Right of spring, and I just remember just just falling in love with it, and and uh, I had you know I was just by myself and in front of a computer like this with headphones, probably cheaper than these, and I would just listen to to it, and like I remember uh, there's this part I forget what ex- specific part of the piece it is, but it's whenever you have those very long um, quarter notes. Uh, with this, with the low strings, mm-hmm. and you get that low uh, downbeat, boom, and then you get the upbeats on the string, boom, boom. Oh yeah, the beautiful in the first boom, part of the boom. piece, the Act One or whatever it's called. Yeah, first tableau. And I just remember hearing that and literally just tearing up and listening to it, and like I was like, I have to feel that again, and I'll go back and you know get get the shivers and, but yeah, I mean, and but yeah, I it flowed naturally that kind of music to other music that I listened to back in the day. So I can relate to that for sure. Yeah. So um, you were talking about modular synthesis earlier. And uh, it was funny as I don't know if you're familiar with, with Andrew Huang. Oh yes. Yeah. He, he's, he's got that monster wall of uh, yes. modular stuff. I mean, during the pandemic, I got really into YouTube and I finally yeah. started like subscribing to people's channels. And, nice. and it's funny, I didn't realize how much I was missing out on what a wonderful experience that is. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's, it's similar. It reminds me of social media in a way, but it's, you know, because you're curating your own experience. But there's yeah. so much to learn, right, on YouTube. It's incredible. So much. Yeah. I mean, it's really giving higher ed a run, run for the money when you think about it. Yeah. There's so oh, much yeah. you could learn. I mean, I think in something like composition study, that's a bit different because you truly benefit from having one-on-one yeah. feedback and things. Yeah, exactly. I don't think there's a YouTube video that's going to replace that. Well, it's you can hire a consultant and pay him a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you could, but right? But that's, that's you could do the that. The alternative that I can think of. But know? Andrew Wong, yeah, and and so I, that's most of my sub the channels I sub subscribe uh, to and on YouTube are related to yeah modular, modular synthesis. synthesis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I interested know very in little build, about it. I mean, I, I'm I don't know if it will happen. I've made some preliminary steps towards building my own hardware at some point. Um, oh, okay. There have been some advances in the language that I use uh, for software, which is called Max MSP, uh, mm-hmm. which we did, which was 
uh, Professor Russell Pinkston taught at uh, UT. Yeah. And I teach that now as well. It's a great for learning. It's a language for musicians. It's for people like us because yeah. I'm not, um, I think the ship sailed for me to learn something like C++ or, you know, these other languages. But now they've introduced some new features in Max that allow you to export your code into formats that would allow you to make VST plugins or nice. hardware, yeah. web audio stuff. I mean, it's pretty wild. I mean, more, there still would be more of a universal use for, for. Oh yeah, I mean, it's gonna it, it's basically blowing the door wide open of what's possible. And for me and my small software company, right now I only distribute uh, what are called Max for Live devices, which are things that only can run inside of Ableton Live. Now, Ab only Ableton. Ableton is a widely popular software. Huge, yeah. It's, yeah, it's not that it has a tiny user base. That's what We're Andrew talking, Huang uses. <laughs> yeah, it's in millions of people use Ableton. And my guess is probably about 5 million, let's say. Maybe yeah. maybe even more than that. Yeah. Uh, so that's, but there's a ceiling then, mm -hmm. right? I because use that's logic. 5 million people, right? Because there are millions of logic users. Pro Tool users, blah, blah, blah. The fact that I'm only building and distributing software that can only run in this one program, then you hit the ceiling pretty early. If I could make VST plugins, then the ceiling is much, much higher. Then we're talking there millions was more. One of your applications, and I should have gone back and figured out which one it was that you were like showing on your Facebook. I think that's where you were like, oh, we're excited about this coming out. And I saw that it had the Abl uh, Ableton, what do you call it? Like the little module FX thing that, that the little strip at the bottom, like I, I saw how it would work with Ableton. I was like, I wonder, like, does it work with logic? Can you get it to work with logic? I, I, I try it out. One day, but, maybe yeah. one day. That's the thing. So that's the one downside is for yeah. me right now is that, uh, but I do, love, I think like making music software as a, as someone with a classical music composition background, um, and, and less of a sort of programming background. I mean, most of what I know about programming is just whatever I learned myself over the last decade or so. Um, and writing pieces that require that electronic component, something that commercial software couldn't do, well, then I have to make it. That's how I learned. Mm -hmm. You know, I wrote a couple of pieces at UT while I was a student there that involved that type of thing because there was no commercial solution available for my idea. And mm -hmm. I had to learn. And that's what, that's truly how you learn it, when you incorporate it in your work in that way. I remember um, there being a piece that I don't remember hardly anything about it, but it was it was done, uh, performed with Maximus P as a as a way to input the, the music. And it had a cow. And it had, like, funny, like, flashing things in his eyes. And oh, stuff. That, was, uh, that was a Steve Snowden piece, I think. Steve Snowden. He was, he was uh, you know, so for your listeners, right, he's a composer who was a colleague of mine at uh -huh. UT Austin. And then later we together did the uh, Fast Forward Austin Festival for many years. Mm -hmm. And uh, he uh, was also on this path and I, I assume still does do these sort of elaborate live electronic processing pieces. Mm -hmm. That one was quite elaborate, I recall. It had like a live pitch shifting and things like that. A lot of things that can go wrong. I'm sort of coming out of that phase of doing live audio stuff, realizing that uh, when it comes down to it, it's just very technically not so. I mean, sure, I can do it. It's more about for the performer, the technical demands are too great, I think. I'm sort of moving yeah. away from that. I think fixed media is can be very compelling still yes. and convincing. Well, talking about fixed media... Uh I was t telling Katie, uh, my wife was like, oh, you know, I'm who I'm going to talk to this week. I'm going to talk to Ian Dickey. And it's like, oh, how cool. And it's like, 
make sure you tell him this is the only thing that I remember about him. And I'm like, okay, what is it? And she's like, credit, credit card, credit card, credit card. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that piece is still played to this day several times a year, which surprises me because so that's effective. an old piece, you know. <laughs> so good. Uh, I mean, I had so much fun making that piece. I remember that. Yeah. And that was a great experience doing that. I mean, that, that those years at UT for me were really, truly wonderful. That's when I really started making what are my, you know, sort of as breaking out as a professional composer. The work I did there is still work that's done today, mm -hmm. um, which you never know, of course, when you're making it back as a student. But And I had all the time in the world to focus on that stuff. It's so funny because I thought I was busy then, but God, if I could tell, if me today could tell my, you know, former self, hey, this is nothing, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. you're like, you're going to, you think you work hard now, get, get ready. You know, yeah. I guess that's how that's life. I don't know. There's a, my, my sister-in-law, she is, uh, she teaches at a university over here in, in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And, uh, she teaches what well, she has her degree in biomechanics. Hmm extremely smart person like i i i am afraid to even try to explain what she does all i know is she wears a lab coat and she wears with mice right <laughs> like she she's literally that person and she's incredibly smart and she says she has a theory that as people uh reach different thresholds in their lives they they always feel like oh this is just the busiest that i've ever been and then right it's like, oh, just wait. And then you'll get further and you're like, oh my goodness, I, I'm busier than I thought I could ever be. And it's like, just wait. And it just keeps yep. getting busier and busier and busier. And, and then you look back and you're like, man, that was not busy at all back then. But when you right. were there, it felt that way. But I've reached a point. I don't know what it is. I turned 40 uh, mm -hmm. this year. And okay. uh, not that that's a big deal to me, but you know, when you turn a new decade, that's sort of you do some reflection yeah. more, yeah. Made more than you you normally would. Sure. And yeah, there's part of me wondering if I truly want to keep going uh, like this for another 20 years or whatever or more. I'm not so sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I'm still, the problem is I'm still excited about doing this stuff. That's the problem. Yeah. Why I can't stop yeah. doing it because I'm still excited about it. Like I'm still, I mean, right before getting on this call with you, I'm, mm -hmm trying to finish up this new software that I'm really, really excited to release. Um, because, you know, like I was trying to say, like uh, software for me is kind of just as satisfying, if not more in some ways, than making a piece of music because mm -hmm. it's like a way of disseminating your ideas in a more open-ended format where it's mm -hmm. like, here's something that does stuff that I think is important or interesting, and but you're going to take it and you can do what you want with it and make mm -hmm. any kind of music you want with this thing. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of like I've it's like I have these what you're getting is this box with these guardrails that I've put there. And it's up to you to like stay within those guardrails. But even really great software is the type where you can even get off the guardrails and yeah. just break it almost, right? And oh in a way like, that doesn't like crash the, the computer, hopefully. But well, like yeah. video games do that, right? Like people play the game, but there's always like a meta version. Right, there's of a the meta game, game in there too. Yeah. And that's what Eurorack is all about, I feel like, because of the modulation possibilities. When you have all these little eighth inch jacks and one thing, you know, many modules self-modulate them mm -hmm. itself. You know, if you plug 
and, and it's not meant to, perhaps it's not meant to do that, but you could, right? There's no stopping you from doing that. And then you get the most wild stuff imaginable. Yeah. yeah. Well, the fact that it's just analog gear and there's electricity moving around, there's so much unpredictability. Yeah, it's fun. You're, you're playing with vaults. I mean, I must say everything in my case, I have a small, fairly small setup. Mm-hmm. I think all of my modules, except for maybe the VCA, they're mm-hmm. all uh, actual digital modules. None of them are analog. And that's yeah. what I came to realize too. They're all just like little computers, basically. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I've done very little with with a modular synthesis. I had an app on my phone that had a few different modules you can move around and I just used it to generate uh, to to do like sound design stuff and like yeah, I'll record like that. 20 minutes of it and then like clip little exactly. parts of it and use That's it. a lot of people use it in that way. Yeah. Well, you know, go down the rabbit hole of VCV rack one day if you get a chance. That's free. Okay. And that's what I recommend to people. If you're actually interested in that, do not buy any of this hardware <laughs> stuff. Just just play around with VCV rack. You'll be just as happy doing that. And yeah. the limitations of your rack hardware kind of melt in VCV rack as well, which is mm-hmm. nice. You can have polyphony much more easily. Whereas, you know, most of these modules are just um, mono voices. Yeah. So like a single oscillator can produce one note at a time. Mm-hmm. Th- that's a funny thing. I thought that, I'd, that I would hate that. You know, I'm a composer. I love big chords and lots of sounds. And, and then I got this Mo Grandmother. And this was right before the pandemic. It's funny how that door opened slightly right before the pandemic for me. And then I just went full in after that because I, <laughs> you know, what else was I going to do? Yeah. And uh, the Grandmother is a monosynth. It's a wonderful instrument. I highly recommend I've seen it. Yeah. Not cheap, but... Yeah really well made like real it's a real instrument that will last you should last you many like a lifetime actually it's not one of these cheap sort of chinese um you know keyboard things it's a real it's you know they're assembled in in um in america you know it's a moog is a employee-owned company whatever i can go on about that but it's a it's this monosynth i thought oh that's gonna get boring but guess what i didn't miss it at all because your attention is focused on timbre and not Mm -hmm density of polyphony mm-hmm. and then the fact that it has an onboard arpeggiator a very like um sort of underwhelming simple arpeggiator but it's still effective mm-hmm. you, you know you're arpeggiating through chords that feels like chords you know it doesn't sure it's only one note at a time but you're still getting a sense of harmonic movement by doing such a thing mm-hmm. yeah. but it just yeah it taught me that it's not all about the pitch all the time right and that's what was been great for me this journey is like moving away from being pitch centric all the time really focusing on timbre and maybe rhythm too. I mean, all the kinds of wild rhythms you can generate in your rack. I was listening to a, a YouTube video and I say listening to because I was I was at work. I work at an accounting office. I was assembling some documents and I'm mm-hmm. listening to a lecture on spectral music. <laughs> and and because I remember very little about it, but I remember it being interesting. But yeah, it's very interesting because it's, it's not necessarily pitch centric, but right. timbre centric, right? Like you were saying. Uh, yeah, it's a different kind of listening. Um, yes. One that is, at least to my training and my experiences, music is a little foreign to that. So it's mm-hmm. been good for me yeah. in that sense. But anyway, so yeah, designing the software has been great. Um, sort of, it's opened a new door for me, and I've loved the interactions I've had with my customers, and it's been like ninety nine point nine 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 percent positive. I'm really like, maybe it's because it's self-selective audience. You know, these are tools I'm making are not like to make four on the floor dance beats. I mean, you could actually, but that's not really my target audience. So maybe that's part part of it. Anyone who's interested in this kind of thing is probably going to be someone that 
is, you know, going to be nice, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And when you share certain things in common with people, it's a lot easier to to get along and to understand each other. And to- I mean, that was the one thing I was sort of like, not dreading, but a little nervous about like really taking the software thing more seriously and commercializing mm-hmm. it and doing it. Cause yeah. I'd done that for a few years, but really in a half-assed way where I was just yeah. selling the stuff randomly and not. And yeah, once you start effort. dealing with logic users, you'll change your mind. They're all. And maybe that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I'll do VSTs. I mean, frankly, yeah. it's just, there's not enough hours in the day. That's my problem sure. is wanting to still be a composer yeah. write music and then do the software thing. And I'm realizing like I'd have to really hire employees. Well, you have the elements. commitment of, of being in academia. And there's that too. Right. Yeah. There's expectations of that. No, I'm just com- coming off an incredibly busy, uh, semester. Well, we're actually in the quarter system, but anyway, yeah. semester, um, where I had, you know, more students than I've ever had. I was going in every day. Is mm-hmm. there many hours a day? And yeah. And so then I do that, spend some time with the family. They go to bed early, of course. And then I'm mm-hmm. working on my stuff till whatever, 1130 midnight, rinse yeah. and repeat, you know, and it, that's what I mean by how I don't know how many more years I could really There's do a, that. one of talking about YouTubers um, early on, well, really soon after graduating, I, I started really I always had an interest in it, but I I really started getting into more of the music production side of things. You know, like I say that I'm a Logic user now, but when I graduated, I started using GarageBand a little bit, and then yeah. just it was a natural transition into Logic Pro because which is an excellent app. It's really uh, but before that, I was just you know doing Sibelius, <laughs> which is funny because I hadn't touched, and I recently got it again because I'm writing a piece for my brother who's getting his master's degree in trumpet performance mm-hmm. and getting people need to actually be able to read what I'm composing. Right. Because the uh, built in <laughs> score editors for logic and all these other programs is, no. are very, you know, lackluster. They're, they're very rudimentary and, and right. Right. Really too simple. Yeah. yeah. So, um, anyway, one of the people that I, you know, talking about learning in YouTube, one of the YouTubers that I, followed early on after graduating because i wanted to really get into this music production thing and uh very soon i encounter the wall of post-production and mixing and you know what's still far from a hard to understand world of mastering uh but i was like okay i'm making music but it sounds terrible when I get it to play on other devices on headphones. Right. And so I had to learn mixing. And, and so I started watching this YouTube channel called The Recording Revolution. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was Graham Cochrane. And I think he is probably 41, 42 years old, something like that now. And back then he was probably closer to my age. Wow. And so you were talking about... I don't know if I want to keep doing this for 20 years, right? Well, right. now he's running a whole nother thing uh, where he just teaches business principles. Hmm. And that's what he does because he found that he just loves that so much. And it, I don't know, when you were talking about your creating software and it's like, man, in some ways I feel like this gives me even more joy in in some regards than a new doing a new piece of music well as far as your reach too i mean yeah. you know f- let's face it i'm a you know i i don't know if you know i i don't do film soundtrack work i don't do uh commercial work mm-hmm. i don't do games you know and this yeah. is the stuff of course many of my students are interested in um yes. i don't do that kind of work i really just do concert music you know yes. 
chamber music. I had an opera done this year. Um, it was great, but that's what I do. And um, there's a limited audience for that, you know. And I feel there's a greater reach. Very limited. Um, and again, I sort of like the more open-ended nature of it, where it's like, I'm not forcing you to listen to this piece. This is what this... I mean, sure, I want people... <laughs> sure, I would love people to listen to my music, but this open-ended thing where it's like, here's some concepts that I think are cool. Like, I made a Rhythmicon. That's one of my software things. It's this Rhythmicon, mm-hmm. which is uh, this thing that um, Henry Cowell came up with and, and Theremin back in the 30s, where it's like... You play these, you create these rhythms based on harmonic ratios, and I won't go too far into that, but it's very, you get these really interesting rhythms out of it. Okay. And I yes. created that device. And it's so, it's fun because you could play whatever you want on it. I'm not telling you what to play with it, but you're going to get these rhythms that me, you, whoever is probably not going to generate on your own. So I love that sort of generative aspect of music software. Yeah. Yeah. And happy accidents and things like that. And that's what I'm sort of focused on. Yeah. I like that happy accidents. Sounds it's very- it's fun. I mean, I myself, I'm much faster composing with the keyboard, old fashioned mm-hmm. style, right? You know, I put on my white wig and I <laughs> I sit at the keyboard and I get my quill out and I start writing stuff down. But uh, for I know for many others, it's not like that, and that's what I love, right? About this sort of uh, revolution going on in things formats like Eurorack, mm-hmm. modular synthesis in general. It's a completely different way of making music. Yeah. Perfectly valid too. It requires a lot of specialized knowledge and skill. So if you're somebody that thinks that that's an important aspect, I'm not saying I think it is, mm-hmm. but if you think like, well, anybody could twist some knobs and make noise. Yeah. No, actually that's not true. I mean, sure. Yes. My kid can come over here and turn up certain things and make some wild sounds, but they have no awareness of what it is they're doing, which it's, means there's no connection to what they're doing. You know, someone to make, make a meaningful experience if they know what they're with, if they know what the knobs are actually controlling, mm-hmm. it's a lot of specialized knowledge. One of uh, my favorite producers, music producers, his name is, I don't know what his name is, but he goes by Mr. Bill. Mm. And uh, he, he does, I don't know that he does much mod- on the way of modular synthesis, but he was, he does work with knobs and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And he, he's a DJ. And so mm. he was talking about, doing performances as a DJ, you know, dead mouse style, you know, in front of crowds and, yeah. and how it's weird because there's not that connection that people understand when they see someone up there shredding on the guitar, people understand, Oh, yeah. I know how hard that is because tons of people have tried, picked up a guitar, you know, play a note, but not many people have, had and there's the visual of seeing them. someone's fingers going quickly, yes. you know, across a, a fingerboard. Yeah, right. There, it's undeniable. Like, at the, they're very technical things, and and there's it, from a performance angle too. Not just, not just like it's technical to know what the knobs do once you move right. them, but like really as you're moving things in in certain ways, and it's like, okay, this thing is about to come in, so I need to make sure that this. All right. I mean, it's a performative aspect to yeah. all this stuff, and that I do think you're right. You're hitting on something, and that's a good point there. That it's. Electronic music suffers from that visual candy, eye candy. This is why, of course, the DJs are also VJs, right? They have these elaborate mm-hmm. visual components because they know it's very not very interesting watching them futz around on their That's laptop. Yeah, you or just a, a turn big, some like, knobs. Dead mouse thing with screens and. Yeah, I mean, so I'm interested in combining both. Like, I have a piece where I play piano, I sing, and I do live electronic stuff with this uh, thing called a, Ableton makes a push controller. It's like this big 64 grid 
controller thing. Is that what's behind you? It is what's behind me there. Okay. And so I do this piece where I'm playing that and piano and singing, do all this stuff live because thinking of trying to solve that problem, that wasn't the only reason I did the piece. There were many reasons mm-hmm. I wanted to do it, but that was one of my motivations too, is to make that interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, because it is very boring watching someone scroll on their computer. Who wants to watch that? You know? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I Not mean, interesting at all. And it's like, because you want to see a connection, there's going to be this big bassy sound, right? But if I'm making that happen by turning this little tiny knob, mm-hmm. that doesn't seem, seem to, there's no connection there. Whereas when, you know, you're watching a rock band and the bassist raises their arm and they go, bam, down, right? And they really hammer on that low E string. You feel that, you see that, there's a connection mm-hmm. there. And that's with the amplifier, too. Of course, it's loud because it's being amplified. But there's something that really suffers, right, with hardware where it's just turning knobs or scrolling a jog wheel. It's not interesting at all. Yeah, there's that that missing connection of... Well, because part of what makes music so cool when you see a performer up there is you you see people... uh, We like to watch people being competent, right? So they're up there and they're being virtuosic or... Or they're doing certain things that they, it communicates something in a very specific kind of way, and it's just really fun to see. Um, and it's harder to to appreciate that on on uh, electronic music. Are you familiar with uh, the company? Uh, what are they called? The ones that build the pocket operators and the oh, teenage engineering. Teenage engineering, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I have a couple of pocket operators laying around, and I think they're really. I fun. wanted to get the Street Fighter one. That one looked fun. <laughs> I think it's just a sampler, too. Yeah, so I think you so. Just, yeah, do all kinds of fun, wacky things that I can do all that with a phone or with an iPad, though. So it seems a little silly to me to do that. But anyway, the there's a YouTuber talking about more YouTubers. Uh, he goes by Cuckoo. <laughs> Cuckoo. Yeah, I know that that you know, one. Cuckoo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> his crazy hair and beard. Right, he's got the and, hair. He's actually a guy, he's he's uh, from Greece, but he's also Swedish, I think, or Norwegian. He's got the he's interesting mix. Very interesting mix, yeah. yeah. And he has a couple of videos that he did where he's holding one of these little pocket operators, and we're talking about performing, right? Right. He does this weird little dance, and he moves in all kinds of strange ways, but mm. he's He's going with the music, and it's a very original, like, <laughs> you performance. You have to do something, right? Because it's <laughs> it's very it's lacking otherwise, right? Yeah, yeah. Because how I do mean, you show? It, yeah, how it's the same with electronic feel. Yeah. Electronic music general, like, is the most unless you really there's so much finesse that's required of sculpting of the sound, right? Because mm-hmm. you you play violin, and just the beauty of hearing all the small nuances in the timbre that are happening as the bow is going across the string. Mm-hmm. You can't even, I can't even quantify that, but right. But there's no end to that. There's a, this infinite sort of very small variation happening in the sound, which keeps it interesting to us. Yeah. Electronic music doesn't have that on its own. You play a single note and it's on a sawtooth and that thing, and let's say there's no modulation applied, that's the most boring thing you've ever heard in your life yes. after about a minute. And that's what the, the other thing about its challenge, right, of electronic music, or the thing you have to know is that there's so much sort of automation required. Now, you could, it, of course, to get more technical, it could be automation or it could be that there's a sort of set and forget modulation thing happening, which sort of mm-hmm. makes the job easier. Uh, but either way, you have to think in these very uh, different ways. When I write for a violin, I don't need to think worry about that. I know it's going to sound hopefully right. If I'm working with with a you know, I'm lucky to work with great musicians most of the time. Of course, 
um, it's going to sound great. I don't have to worry about that component. But if I'm making an electronic track, which I do, you know, for these pieces where they're sort of like fixed media with instruments, there's so much tedious work that's required. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, and I don't even know if I succeed in it. I try. I just, I think it helps at least to be aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the musician, the musicians do all the, all the modulation. <laughs> right. I mean, that's the thing. Exactly. That's the downside, right. Of cutting out the performer in this yes. process. Yeah. You know, there's a sort of like, uh, I forget where I read, it's called the aesthetic apparatus where it's like the concert hall itself, the performers, the relationship with composer to performer, the audience, all this stuff is lives in the same sort of arena. And we have to consider all these things, but the composer is on one end of the spectrum. The audience is on the other. Guess who's in the middle, right? The performer for us. So, and we have to have good relationships with them. And this is things I've always talked about. And I talk about in my classes and, you know, we have to provide well notated scores because that's the way that we're communicating our ideas. Yeah. It's an approximation of an idea. Music score is nothing. Yes. It's not any standard. I mean, it's not the end all be all for anything. All it is is an approximation of ideas. I mean, again, talking about the well-tempered clavier, there aren't any dynamics in there. There aren't really any <laughs> slurs this is before any of this stuff. Right. That's and right. so it's yeah. just, but does anyone sit there and play it just straight like that? No. no. And people play it with dynamics and some people ruin it and play it with the pedal down on the piano. And that's a whole other topic. Yeah, but yeah. you know, if you really want to play that correctly, there should be no pedaling or extremely limited amount of pedaling yeah. that you use. Well, but the anyway, voicing is like the, yeah, the voicing is where it's at. You have to have that kind of <laughs> finesse, but anyhow, yeah. but with electronic music, you're cutting out the performer part. And so then as a composer, you're doing double duty, right? You got to, make the music itself, but then you have to make it sculpt the sound and do all the things that the performer would be doing for you. Yeah. Um, so that's you know, why I it's have a, much more I difficult. I have a friend who, who he's a, he runs a recording studio in Austin. And uh, I was talking with him about production and he was telling me that a really cool thing you can do, like let's say you have a, a demo or, or a, of, of a, a string quartet you're writing or something like that and you're using like really high quality sample instruments and you still don't capture the, the finesse right. and nuance of a musician he's like you know you gotta do right it's like what get one string player just a violin player or or the cellist or whatever and get them to play the thing yeah and mix it together and with mix it in yeah you'll be amazed at it just you can tell i know i mean now, lower budget sort of, film scores do that because you know they'll hire like a, maybe the quartet but then you'll have all this big string sound behind because yeah. we've gotten good at sampling big string sections to sound yes. a certain cinematic way we've gotten very good at that yeah but you're as you said that's still missing that's whatever that's called the uncanny valley thing where it just doesn't <laughs> yeah. quite right I wonder if in live settings it's it's a similar thing where like you're talking about a fixed media piece where yeah. you have a, a you know like your credit card credit card right. credit card piece um, something like that that's part of why it's so affecting I mean like the coins yeah uh, uh, that drop I, in that yeah. yeah I wish I could play a little bit of it just so people knew um, and how it just blends in like it almost sounds as if the sounds are coming out of the piano. There's Something an interesting like, like similarity of the spectra of the high end of the piano, the top octave or two, and yeah. the sounds of those coins. And that's actually not something I was like 
I had thought of on the onset, but when I started playing, you know, you mess around and it's in mm-hmm. the sandbox when you're playing around and writing music and, yeah. and discovering that those two sounds had a lot of similarities and that was quite fun, right? Putting, putting those together. Yeah. But you know, I mean, lately I've been doing, even for some of these pieces where I want to simulate that there's live looping happening, even if it is not live, meaning that it's pre-recorded. Mm-hmm. I used to actually think, well, I got to go record a real piano. You know, and I got to record it maybe on the piano that I know that the piece will be ultimately played on so it matches and all this stuff. Well, recently I did a piece for a pianist friend of mine and about soccer, and that's a whole other thing. It was kind of a challenging <laughs> piece to do. But it had this live looping element, to, or like the facade of live looping. is actually mm-hmm. all fixed media. You know what I used for the piano in that one, for the like media, fixed media part? I just used this Garretton uh, Abbey Road piano. Nice. Yamaha. And actually, it sounds okay. When you play it by itself, sure, it doesn't sound like a real, real piano, but it's pretty damn close. But Mm -hmm. you mix that in with the fact that, again, thinking about all these extra things we don't think about, the loudspeakers of the hall, the acoustics of the hall itself, all these factors, plus whatever piano's on the stage, it's not always going to be Steinway D, you know. And guess what? It mixes fine. And all these years, I'd worried about all this stuff so much, it didn't matter. Yeah, the human brain fills in all the gaps. It fills in some gaps. And plus, guess what? I wasn't just having the sound of piano in the loops. Of course, I was Mm -hmm. filtering it. I was like going back to the whole sculpting, right? Yeah. The sound is constantly moving in subtle ways, sometimes more aggressive ways. And that's the other point too. It doesn't need to sound like it's coming like exactly from that instrument. Because in my experience of doing that, which I did for many years, it actually never sounds very good because when you're truly capturing the sound live, unless you're running it then through a live compressor and live, you know, EQ and have like hours of time to set it up, which you never do. Like this piece that I used to perform all the time and I've been performing it again recently because my record came out called Cowboy Rounds, the piano voice and live electronic piece. I used to do it all live. I did it all live. I had sound checks sometimes that were 10 minutes and I'd be lucky and I was lucky it never fell apart completely, even though that piece was all live looping and everything was live. It was crazy. Now I've been per- performing it with fixed media. It sounds so much better. It sounds so much better. And you know what? The audience doesn't care. Yeah, they don't they care don't. that it's done live. <laughs> what they want is, and when it allows me to not stress, because you know, when you make a loop, you make a mistake in the loop. Guess uh-huh. what? You hear it over and over again. It's the worst. Yes, yeah. And that happened to me a few times, a few performances over the years. Uh, you know, and that's, uh, that's not fun. Now I can play with much more confidence. And I noticed that the two recent performances I just came off of doing about a, yeah. about a month ago, I played that better than I ever had before. Yeah. I made like no mistakes. You know why? Because I wasn't nervous. I yeah. thought like, I'm just going to play my best and really get more into the performance, more into the vocal performance, all these things that I couldn't focus on before because I was so worried about like, I remember like performing this thing, I'd be playing the loop and I knew I was being recorded and I think to myself, don't screw this up, don't screw yeah. this up, screw this yeah. up. So, and that's, if you're doing that, you're not going to do a, a very compelling performance, you know. Getting recorded does something to your brain. Yeah, it's, yeah, it, <laughs> you know, and that's what I love about, and maybe Logic has this too, Ableton has this thing where I don't know if you're like me, like you come up with a cool idea. As soon as you hit the record button, that idea all of a sudden sucks. It's like the mm-hmm. worst idea ever, and it, you're not playing it the way that yeah. it was, and, and you just don't capture it. I, I they have this like silent capture thing where like, you know, you, you're like, hey, wait, that was cool. I click yes, the button. I've heard there of it. There it is. Yeah. It's all there. 
Yeah. Once Ableton introduced that a couple of years ago, that was a game changer for my process as a composer. Mm -hmm. I use that now all the time. See, I work backwards. I hit record and I and I try something out and I go mm -hmm. with small phrases. And if I if I like it, then I'll like keep a portion of it and yeah. then I'll keep adding to it and and tweaking. Right. And then I, sometimes I'll even go back and open the MIDI file and like, right. like oh, this shouldn't have been a little shorter here and this right be a longer i think you're describing what i'm doing what i do as well basically. Do as well? okay yeah it's a lot of right it's more work later you know it is very fast just to write directly to sibelius i mean as yeah. you know too as you work that way for many yeah. years and i did for many many years but in the last about four or five years my process now is more improv and capturing those improvs like you just said yeah whittling it down later and sure then there's the whole process of making the score but what i think is results in more natural music music I that's so less too, concerned yeah. with being complex as you know when you work in sibelius you're being encouraged in a way to fill the page fill the entire page fill the page fill the page that looks too you know and you know whatever i'm a tenure professor i don't care anymore i just want to make music that i want to make i don't care how complex it is i'm not looking to win some big award anymore i don't but care if you look at a score i mean unless it's compressed but if you look at the score that all the it has the the entire orchestra the whole time as you're mm -hmm. flipping pages right you can see there's so much space that's not being used until you get to some of those really important moments. Yeah, if you look at like, the best music, right, exactly. Look at your models, the things that you admire. You'll notice yeah. that it rarely is that complex all the time. Yeah, I mean, my favorite composers are probably Stravinsky, Richard Strauss, and, and it's like that. And they like to write. They like to Those are the heavy page. pieces, too, right, They like right. to fill the page, but even them, like, right. <laughs> so much of it is just... You know, exactly. three, four instruments here, and then moving from from strings to woodwinds to brass, and you know, and, and just being able to capture the, because that's uh, when it comes to orchestral music, that's the fun part. It's all the changes in color. Exactly. And and well, not the only fun part, but that's one of the at least what I find. <laughs> I mean, years ago, back at UT, uh, we had a visiting composer named Michael Torkey. He was a successful concert music composer. Um, I'm sure he's won many awards. And so it was a masterclass thing, and I got to participate, which was a great experience for me. I showed him this uh, chamber orchestra piece, and we played the recording. He looked at the score, and he turned to me when he was done, and he said, well, that was a great piece, but it's too bad it will never win any awards because it's you know just eighth notes. And the thing, the funny thing is, I mean, so I didn't take it as a slight because he was saying, like, lamenting the fact not that 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 was his criticism, yeah. um, but you know was, he was right because it's true. Student competitions, at least the ones when you're like you know under thirty, or maybe even the ones when you're more like in your thirties, they you know the works that are rewarded sometimes are the ones where the scores look very fancy and complex. And yeah, this was a score that was mostly just eighth notes. Yeah. And again, like not concerned with the way the score looks. It's about the music, the way it sounds. Of yeah. course, this is the way I feel about these things. Yeah. And so uh, I don't know. I just this conversation reminded me of that experience. And yeah, well, that's, and, you uh, started with that earlier when you were talking about the music notation. I forget the exact wording you used, but like it's only an approximation. Yeah, of, it's an approximation. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, unless we truly want like this MIDI type of playback where it's like that's 480 right. ticks to the quarter note, and you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm trying to remember. George Crumb, that's his name. Mm -hmm. He he 
he it was like I feel like there was someone who actually turned his music notation into art. <laughs> oh yeah, then that was right. And it's funny because that wasn't new. Also, there's nothing new under the sun because there was these sure. composers, the Ars Nova composers of the uh, late uh, 13th, 14th mm-hmm. century, doing that type of thing too, yeah. like pieces shaped as a compass and and yeah. hearts and things like that. Yes, yes. Yeah. When I was in UT, I think one of my favorite pieces I wrote. I might have actually written this when I was taking your class. I don't remember if it was for that class, but I call it Tango Transfigurations. Mm. Uh, but then my two favorite composers were Piazzolla and Richard Strauss. So it was kind of like, yeah, you know, both was, of those. I was, I was just playing. Oh, it's hence the transformation part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Strauss, the death yeah. and transfiguration. <laughs> right, right, Strauss. Right. And uh, so I wrote this piece and my favorite part of it was I spent tons of time having no idea how to notate this, but I just had this idea in my head of what I wanted to sound like. And I spent all this time on this one page. And in the end, everybody, I always had to explain to the musicians what they're supposed to do because I couldn't get it. But I loved looking at it. I was like, this looks so fun. You know, it has all the weird lines in it and notes and and exp- little blocks of text explaining to musicians what they're supposed to do. But Oh, yeah. It's well, fun. It's, uh, it's good to include right as much information as you can. I always tell students that the performers are only going to give you thirty percent of what's on the page. So, because you know, I have students who don't write very many dynamics. I'm like, why aren't there any dynamics? You know, mm-hmm. well, I, you know, I'm just going to let them decide. No, <laughs> sorry, I don't think so. Well, Bach didn't write dynamic. <laughs> well, yes, but if you're on that level of genius and people hundreds of years later are playing your music, sure, you can get away with that, I think. Yeah. Plus, that was the, of that of that time. No. Yeah, I know. That's so funny. There were conventions. You know, and it's not written in there, but it, when a phrase repeats, you do the sort of echo thing where it's quieter. And then, you know, all these conventions. Yes. That's, a, that's a problem with that music, of course, is you do have to be a, a somewhat of an expert to truly mm-hmm. give a great interpretation of it. Um, well, maybe that's true of all music. I don't know about that, but that is one barrier, I think, to that kind of music. Well, I think certainly you have to be an expert uh, at understanding that particular uh, thing, right? But but yes, you don't have to only be an expert to play that kind of music, right? But like, that you have kind to be of an thing. Expert, but it's different different levels of expertise to play different kinds of music. Um, like I remember there was a piano player at UT and I don't mm. remember his name. I wish I could remember, but he was playing all the new music pieces. Mm-hmm. And he want, he, er, someone wrote a new piano piece and he was in it. Uh, he was a very fast guy and uh, skinny and high energy. And I can remember his name. It's killing me, but, but he was really good at it because he yeah. kind of understood. Right. Uh, I wrote a piece uh, for Katie, actually, for her graduation mm-hmm. senior recital for for uh, piano and French horn. And she performed that at her recital. And I didn't love the way that the piano player interpreted the, the music. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she played it again on my senior recital. And mm-hmm. uh, Brian Heim played the piano. Oh, I remember composer. Brian. Yeah. yeah. And he got it. Like yeah. he knew exactly what I wanted. He understood because I guess you could say he's more of an expert at understanding and translating the minds of other fellow composers. And, sure. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. It's, yeah. The it's score is only the start of something, right? And it's not the, 
authority on anything. And that's the joy, of course, of working with musicians who are alive now and composers who are alive now because you actually can have a dialogue and sculpt mm -hmm. a performance. Yeah. Man, what it's been a really fun conversation so far. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, th I think it's been nice to get into sit down with you again and spend many years yeah it has it's funny because uh, i i don't really get to talk about composition very technically like this because i don't i mean i do now and, and to some degree but i just don't do it very often so it's fun <laughs> doing this. well and as you get older as a composer you yeah. sometimes you don't have the opportunity to talk shop anyway mm -hmm. i mean except for whatever critiques i give my students in the lesson yeah. so it's yeah. not I don't talk about it outside of that context, yeah. really. I'm only afraid that whoever w was thinking about listening to this episode kind of like is not listening to it anymore because it's like, I have no <laughs> idea what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I but, know. I mean, it's so far entrenched in this world. Uh, you Right, you lose sight of the fact that yeah. most people are not on board with that <laughs> to the yeah. same degree. Yeah, I, I listened to a good bit of podcasts and I was listening to a podcast on... Uh, so neuroscientist guy, uh, something Huberman is his name, and uh -huh. he was talking to a psychologist, and they were talking. It was an interesting conversation. I wanted to listen to it more, but it, it just got so technical so fast, and you know, I I'm like, okay, right. I can't. I feel like I need to do some research before I can come back. And this just seems like a very interesting topic. I just it's way over my head. So, well, music's not that difficult. It's really not. You know, Even though really, I, you will never master it, as I said earlier. <laughs> yeah. No one will. Yeah. Well, and, you know, at which point do you say you're a master or someone's a master? It's it's hard to, to even draw that line. Well, I remember having those types of thoughts, like, as a student, like, well, once I write this kind of piece, then I really have learned something, right? Or I've done this mm -hmm. or I've done that. And, yeah. and I'm happy to say I've done most of the things I had set out to do. Yeah. Um, I'm not done, but you know, I mean, I've achieved a lot of those things that I wanted to, to do, but yeah, on the other side of the coin, there's always more that you want to do, or you look back and it, it's a temporary like hit of dopamine when you <laughs> finish a project and you feel excited. Yeah. Um, but then the, your brain is, is not very kind in that way because that er erodes quickly and. Yeah. You're back at it again. I know I will release this software I'm desperately trying to finish. I really had tried to target this month as a release date. Mm -hmm. Either way, it's going to come out, but then it'll feel good for a day, and then I'll be like, okay, what's yeah. next? <laughs> you know. And uh, But the, the, the thing that sort of gets unnerving with music is that I actually do know what's next, and that's the thing. I don't ever see an end in it. And that's the <laughs> problem with doing trying to do be a composer and do software and do teaching and and that's what I mean by this sort of don't know how much longer I want that feeling of never being done. Sometimes yeah. I envy people that have the sort of job where when they clock out at five, they're done. Mm -hmm. They're actually done. They can go home and do whatever they want. They don't have to feel guilty about not doing this or not doing that. Yeah. And it's just not like that about music. Of course, you know, ultimately I don't have regrets of this career sure. path, but you know, it's, it's hard and like, you know, not spending as much time with family as you maybe as you would normally or having time for friendships and, and things like that. Um, it's, those are the downsides to this type of life, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you, you're a t technician, right? A technician spends time doing his craft and it, it just, 
it consumes you in, in a lot of ways. It just takes a lot of time. I mean, I don't, I've been this thing I've been working on. I'm working on for four months, yeah. and I thought it was going to be a one month thing. I actually thought that, yeah. and then as you keep building it, you keep going. Well, people are going to like it if you could do this with it, and oh, people <laughs> will like it if you do because you know I know my customers. Oh, they're going to like that, and then you keep adding these things, and it became a little bloated. Then you got to go back and redefine the UI, and it's oh, it mm -hmm. just never ends. Yeah. Do you do you collaborate with uh, other people that maybe have more of an expertise in the area of developing software? Well, the thing is, I think if I'm truly serious about growing my business, um, which has has become a very decent um, income stream yeah. from, from novel myself. music, That's novel cool. music, yeah, gotcha. and it's become a decent income stream for me. If I was truly, you know, if I wanted to take it to the next level, where I could even like maybe just do that, for instance, which I'm not saying I would want. I think I would not actually like that, mm. but. Um, it would require, as you said, collaboration. I would need employees. I need to work yes. with people who can make a UI for a v VST, for instance, because even though I can maybe now export my code, I don't know anything about doing the front end, uh, that yes. type of thing. And I'm not going to learn that. I mean, I do not have the time to learn that stuff. Mm -hmm. I need someone to uh, do Instagram promotion. I need this and that. I mean, these are all things that I do now. I don't do them very well. I think ultimately the thing I focus on, of course, is the quality of the product itself. That's mm -hmm. the most important thing. Yes. And then it's all about word of mouth from there. I mean, it shocks me in a good way about the people find out about this stuff that I'm making. I don't even understand how they find out about it. Maybe because, again, it's a small world and it's not hard to find this stuff. But I get downloads because I have one freebie on my website, which is something if someone interested in doing this kind of thing, selling software, mm -hmm. you should always have a strong Ruby. free software, not something that's limited or like feature limited either. Something that's really great. Yeah. I have such a thing and something that I love using myself. I use it all the time. Yeah. It's a MIDI effect. But anyway, I get downloads for this thing many, many every day all over the world. And I think to myself, where is someone in South Africa finding out about this? And I'm, I'm not kidding. Every country. Yeah. Yeah. It's been over 100 different countries that I've had downloads from. Whoa. Thousands Whoa. of downloads. It's incredible. Wild. And it's, that's what I mean by reach. And I really like that. that that's, like, that's a way for my... Yeah. Uh, what can I contribute, right, to this world of music? Yeah. Um, not because I like want to be remembered in any way. I just mean like, how can I meaningfully contribute to this community mm -hmm. of music makers around the yeah. world? Yeah. I feel it's less likely through actually my own music, but maybe more likely in this medium. Yeah. You know, well, if that is the goal ultimately. Yeah. Well, maybe this would be a, a good uh, way to to begin wrapping things up. Um, I was talking to you about ways that I like to. I'm trying to structure this this podcast. Yes. You know, this is this is one of those things that I am very creative to. Uh, and this is really a hobby. Like I'm doing it just because I enjoy having these types of conversations with people. Yeah. Uh, and really at any level, I, I just find them very enjoyable and very fun. And I, I wish that I did more of that before. Um, but hey, we're here, so I'm doing it now. Right. And uh yeah, so talking about uh, promotion of your thing, and and then you were saying I always have a good freebie. I feel like that's probably the one of the most important marketing principles is uh, generosity. 
Like, I think so. Generosity keeps people coming back. Show people you care. I yeah. do care. I really care a lot, actually. Maybe too yeah. much. You know, <laughs> I really, I want everyone who's interfacing with me in this company, for instance, yeah. to have a very positive experience. I don't want yeah. anyone to have a negative experience. Yeah. You know, I want everyone to feel valued and I want, you know, just, yeah, that, that to have that from end to end, a yeah. positive experience is very important to me. Yeah. It's quite something when you're saying that, like, you're not even, uh, actively promoting this thing and it's like people from all over the world are trying to get it that really says something about it well then, then again that's what underscores for me the idea yeah. that like if i had somebody helping me with this maybe it actually could become like something yeah <laughs> i bet i really you know and i don't think you're talking about how niche your your products are your your software is and i think that's in some ways that's a good thing you know? I mean, they're built from the idea that you don't have to have had studied music at all to get something mm -hmm. out of them, which is yeah. another joy, you know, trying to step down from my little place in the ivory tower and make something that's useful for anybody yeah. that still embodies things that interest me. You know, that's the fun challenge. Right. Oh, I remember where I was going with wrapping up the, the podcast. So at the beginning, I asked you, you know, who, who you are and what what motivates you, that kind of thing. And I guess to maybe start wrapping up and in light of what you're saying, you know, what are some things that you'd like to, to leave behind as a sort of legacy or to be remembered by, or, or maybe start if as best as you feel comfortable answering, you know, where do you see yourself in, in 20 years, you know, uh, or where, where would you like to be or what would you like to be doing? That's funny yes. to have a, yeah, because I'm, when you turn 40 also, you start to have the feeling like yeah. you're halfway through your life. You know, it's yeah. an interesting, not, it's not a negative feeling. It's, it's yeah. just different. It's a new experience, that yeah. thought. You know, I mean, I certainly, I don't, I want to be here forever, but I know that's not going to happen. I don't. <laughs> I do. I want to be on this earth forever. I never want to leave. I like doing all this stuff and I'm, I don't want to get off the ride. But um, even though I'm, you know, sorry, and I don't mean to come across as someone complaining whatsoever, I feel so yeah. uh, grateful and of the life that I have. Um, yeah. It just means that sort of sometimes the level of of of, of work, it, right? It feels like too much. But uh, you know, I like being a teacher. I hope that was the experience you had when I was your teacher as at the start of my mm -hmm. career. It's something I truly enjoy. Yeah. But is it something that I will do, you know, into my 70s? No. <laughs> mm. um, so that's something, of course, I would, would like to be retire. You don't see yourself like Donald Grantham just... I don't know. And I see the appeal to that because at that point yeah. you're maybe kind of dialing it in as far as like you've done all these things. Committee work is maybe less expected at a certain point after you've reached a certain level of echelon of the university. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. And then you're also making it the most money you've ever made as, as you as you age in the yeah. system. So money talks, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. But that said, I would love to, I, I don't plan to live in Southern California my whole life. I know mm -hmm. that. I definitely don't want to stay here. I mean, it has a lot of positive things. I'm near, very close to one of the most largest cities in the world, you know, yeah. major cultural hub. Um, that said, I mean, I would prefer to live in a, you know, more, not necessarily remote, but, you know, a quieter kind of place, have a bigger property. And, yeah. and, uh, that's something I would enjoy. I would enjoy, you know, 
of course, my plans are going to be contingent on what my children do too. You know, I want to be in their lives. So we'll have to see where that is. That's the big factor, I guess, is I can't answer that question really because I don't know sure. what my kids are going to be up to. And that's, of course, really important to my wife and I. So, But just being able to maybe um, take things at a more leisure pace, that would be my fantasy, I guess. Mm, yeah. it's a. I think we share, share a similar vision in that aspect. Um, Kitty and I would like to eventually land on a, I don't know if remote is the right word, like you said, uh, but just... Happy. Well, I want to be with people. I'm not looking to like get away from people. But <laughs> in, right. as you know, in Southern California, I mean, I'm talking, we have eight lane freeways. It's yeah. nuts here. There's too many people in this area. Yeah. Yeah. I think the closest that I got to that was, was being in DFW. And mm, yes, that's also a congested kind of place. Pretty wild. Yeah. 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 Um, no, we, we were, uh, we are currently in Wisconsin. Like I said earlier, we were living in the village of Williams Bay, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. We're like an hour and a half, uh, what is it, east of Madison, Wisconsin. Or mm-hmm. It's an hour and a half or so north. So is it a city of Chicago, like 30,000 people or how oh, many people? Oh, no, less, less. Like 15,000? Uh, no, I think uh, there's a, well, the village of Wisconsin, of, of Williams Bay, it's, I think, like two or 3,000 people. Oh, okay. <laughs> There is, uh, but there's a few cities that are all just kind of merged together, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, right. there's a couple of nearby ones that are like 15,000, 12,000. Yeah. So if you kind yeah. of put it all together, you know, there's a good bit of people, but it's pretty remote and uh, we don't love it here just because the apartment we live in is kind of loud mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's a kind of like a apartment complex. There's. And the walls are very thin. Oh yes, I lived in many such places. Yes, yes, yes. So we're we're uh, hoping for you know, like you said, a bigger property is a little bit more quiet. There's nature nearby. You can go on walks, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. But not like yeah, not away from people, preparing for the end of times or something like that. No, no. <laughs> Want to be with you know in a community of some kind and yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, actually, my town I live in now called Claremont is a is a college town. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it's not the college I teach at, so I end up having to commute. Yeah. <laughs> but it's um, it's a really actually a lovely town. But it's small for standards around here. It's thirty thousand people. That's small oh, for that's that's yeah, really small. And all the towns, as you say here, they all run into each other. I mean, we live in what's called the Inland Empire, and that's just this mm-hmm. goes on for about forty or fifty miles of just endless development. You know, yeah, uh, post-war development. Yeah. Um, that stretches along highways. All right, i i want I want to help you, Ian. You were saying you don't have any hobbies. No, I don't. Let's let's talk about something that could be a good hobby. Well, I want to. All my hobbies are still related to music. Like I want work. to build Eurorack modules, maybe you know, okay. and that involves learning to solder and put together those types of things. Yeah. That's a hobby. <laughs> yeah, but it's music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that speaks uh, to the power of music. There's so many facets to it that are really, they may seem unrelated too in certain ways. Like, yes, there's very little to do with me, like the coding I'm doing versus like playing the piano. There's, yeah, basically no connection to that, mm-hmm. but it's still under this one guiding principle. Yeah. 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 Well, and once you're music minded like that, you can't escape it. You see it everywhere. 
and it in, in all forms. Like Ultimately, I, it's just uh, my problem is it's not a problem. It's just the way I'm the way I'm put together is mm-hmm. I have an idea, I have a thing I want to make, I'm going to make it. Yeah, and I know it's even if it takes me a year or more, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to do it. Yeah. And that's it. That's that. And that's the thing. And that leaves no time for other interests. You know, that's just the way that's I'm wired. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's about making the thing, right? Is it actually, like I said, I'm going to feel let down after I release it because then it's like, well, it's over. It's about yeah. the process. Yeah. It's not actually about finishing. Yeah. Um, I'm listening to slash reading a Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell book right now mm-hmm. called What the Dog Saw. I think that's what it's called, What the Dog mm-hmm. Saw. It's a very interesting book. Um, but, uh, anyway, we're talking about, uh, hobbies and such things and, uh, reading has always been, a uh, one of those things for me that I, mm. I, I really enjoy. Um, and I'm, I'm listening to this book and he's talking about, you know, a type of genius people out there in the world that are not your Einstein, your, you know, your really high level right transformative you know, transformative knowledge, kind of geniuses yeah. yeah uh but like the everyday genius and he says like you can think of them as more like obsessive people people that find a thing and they become obsessed with it and they master it to such a degree that you know but it but it kind of takes over everything else in their right. life yeah and i that's one thing that i because in that you see what's the the power of focus and the power of focus is powerful. Like, I mean, like lasers, right? You get things done, you make things happen, you create things. And like you were saying, if even if it takes me a year, I'm going to push through this wall. And I envy people like that in some ways. And I know that that not every single, it's my greatest strength and my greatest weakness. You know, that's what my wife says too. She's like, I've always admired that about you, but at times it drives me nuts because it, and, uh, you know, you have the blinders on and then, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, am I doing the right kinds of investments I should do for my future? Yeah. No, probably not. Mm-hmm. Or am I as attentive to that as I should be? Yeah. Definitely not. Am I, am I as attentive to my kids, like futures and things like that? No. Yeah. And, you know, I, and that's the downside to this way of being wired. Yeah. I And I, I, we share so many things in common from, you know, just having this conversation and, and previous experiences. And that is just something that I, I feel very different. And I envy that aspect of getting things done and ramming through to things almost like I'm no. going to do this because I, I feel passionate about it. And I just, I have many loves <laughs> for many things. And so I'm more the kind of person that, you know, I struggle with, creating so many things and then not seeing them through right because you it's hard to pick one because you're so interested in that's my wife everything. you're describing my wife right now i love yeah, that's so her. many things i mean yeah. I, like i said i love reading and uh, and so i've been doing developing this whole like strategy for helping me focus mm. and get certain things done you know i want to start a business in the next couple of years so. mm and like three separate businesses that I'm thinking of, you know, and I'm like, okay, maybe I need to pick one. 
and try to build that. Right. Well, and, I can tell you now from my experience, even yeah. picking one might not be enough. Might not but be yeah, enough. the idea of trying to do more than one business. It's, I mean, now, I mean, because again, what I'm doing is a very amateur level thing for mm-hmm. novel music, but like I can imagine what it's truly like now to have a real business. Yeah. Oh my God. I can, I can, yeah. can't imagine. And hiring how, people and all of that. All and so. that stuff, right. It's incredible. It would take over your life. Any business you could do, even if you think it's a small idea, it's not. It's a big yeah. idea, probably. Yeah. 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 So I, uh, I feel like I want to channel some of that obsessive nature that some people have that, I think people that get things done that have goals and then they make them happen. You know, for me, I just I always think this to myself. I don't know when I first heard it, but this is not a dress rehearsal. This is your life. This, this is your it. life. I like it. Yeah. I think that probably at least a few times a week where I'm like debating doing this or that. I'm like, this is it. Not a dress rehearsal. Make the most of it. <laughs> and will any of this matter to anyone when I'm dead? I don't know. That doesn't matter though. It's a, like I said, it's about the joy of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and the connections that you form from that. And that, like I said, that's, of course, you're a musician, you're mm-hmm. a composer, you, you, you would probably really enjoy those connections yourself. So yeah. it's such an important component. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good note to end on. No pun. Intended. Yeah. Well, it's great to, great talking with you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah. I, you have a very mellow voice, very, uh, Maybe it's just your SM7B you're using. I think it's my SM7B. That's the <laughs> lower <laughs> thing to it. I'll take it. Yeah. No. So I, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. No. Thanks again. And um, we'll do t- stay in touch and let me know what you and Katie are up to and when yeah. you move to Texas and all that. And if you ever are in the Southern California area, I hope you will let me know. Yeah. We try to stay away from there. Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, if you want to f- keep some money in your wallet, yeah, do not come out here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. That's another topic. That's a whole other topic. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Well, I hope you have a lovely time with your family. You said you're going to have lunch soon. Yeah. Yeah. I, gonna... I need to do that too. I normally get home from work and have food and coffee, and I lack both of those right now. So I should. Oh, so you need to. Yes. Yeah. I can see that on your face. It's time. <laughs> okay. Well, Thanks again, and uh, we'll see you soon, I hope. Bye, Ian. Thank you again so much. Bye.